Exodus chapter 20 and commandment number three. Uh, I don't know if you're like this, but uh, I have to uh, slow down and research things before I buy them. I have to really be careful about what, I, you know, what I'm going to do and how I'm going to buy stuff because I'm the guy that the scammers are targeting. I'm the one that they're, hope, they're like, I hope my you know, advertisement comes across his uh, feed or in his email or whatever because uh, there's been a number of times where I've bought something thinking I'm getting a great deal or whatever and it turns out it was just, it was a scam. The, the most recent one that I can remember is I was trying to buy my wife some, some sort of cream for something uh, and it seemed awesome. I was like, oh, that's cool. And, and uh, so, you know, there's this, you know, whatever, video of miraculousness. And I'm like, this is going to be great. Micah's going to love this. And so I uh, buy it, but I think what I'm buying is a trial size, right? And so I'm like, you know, that's cool. I'll spend the five bucks on the trial size of this. But what I didn't really grasp was, no, this, this tiny bottle, they wanted to charge me like 200 bucks for, you know, whatever it was, a couple of ounces. And, um, and the $5 was like, hey, give us your five bucks. And if you don't, cancel it or return it or I don't know what the deal was. We're just going to charge. So I came to find out there was no way to return it. There was no way to cancel it. It was a total scam. And uh, I tried to go through my bank and, you know, get them to reverse it and all that. And then they did and then they didn't. And so I'm out 200 bucks because I'm not that great at uh, not getting scammed. So anyway, it's, it's really, you know, one of those things that there's this, this, this thing that they put out there to, in order to get you to buy it on. And it's this misrepresentation of reality. And in, in commandment number three in Exodus chapter 20 this morning, the focus is on the importance of God's name and how people represent him to the world. God's people will represent him to the world, and all of that has to do with how we exalt and, as to use Jesus' words, to hallow God's name. Remember what's called the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer? Jesus said, hallowed be your name, or to, to call the name of the Lord holy and exalted and lifted up. If, if we do that, we are either going to gloriously exalt the Lord, or we are going to shamefully dishonor him. And that's really what it comes down to in commandment number three. It's possible, uh, excuse me, it's impossible for you to keep your beliefs about God's secrets. It's not, you're not going to be able to do that. And so if that's kind of your goal, you're on this, you know, I want to be this covert, secret kind of a Christian, that, that's impossible. When, when you are doing that, what you are displaying is that you don't really believe who God actually is. It's a, the, the, it is a belief system that's being displayed by your covertness or the way that you are just going to live in such a way that it, it just shows the, the glory and fame of God in your life, that there's, there's no way for you to keep that a secret kind of a thing. You're, that, that which is personal is always displayed in public. You're always going to display it. Now, not everyone's going to be able to pick up on it all the time, and it may take some time for that personal thing to be publicly displayed, but it's always going to happen. It's going to be displayed by your life. In fact, A.W. Tozer said this, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about you 
It's, it's not the job you have. It's not the skills that you have. It's not the amount of money in your bank account. It's not where you're going to go on vacation later this year. Uh, it's not any of those things or, you know, how you look or how, how much you can bench press or whatever. Like I, I, none of those things are the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. So just let that rest for a minute. Let that sink in for a minute. What comes into your mind when you think about God? What, what is there when the Lord is at hand and, and when you are thinking about him? You see, we represent God based on our beliefs about him. And our beliefs about him come from what we think about him. To say it a different way, if I think correctly, then I'm going to believe correctly and my actions will flow out of that. But this, the reverse is true as well. If I think wrong, if I think wrong things about God, then I'm going to believe wrong things about God and then I'm going to end up doing the wrong things. And so what we think really, it matters a lot and at the top of the pile, the most important thing is what do I think about, what do I believe about God? Because people, God's people reflect and manifest him for the good and for the bad. So here's our big idea as we look at Exodus chapter 20 verse 7 today. It's that God's name is to be held high as glorious and honorable. We need to exalt and glorify and hold the name of God in high regard. So let's read Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, and then uh, we'll break it down together. Exodus 20, verse 7 says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's pray. Father, today we just want to pause and, and thank you for how good you are. Thank you that we uh, have songs that we were just singing about how glorious your name is. Thank you, thank you that we are able to reflect upon your word and to see your glory. And we pray that, God, you would cause us to be um, overcome with you, overwhelmed by you. To, to not see you as this common kind of a thing or to, uh, to see you as, as passing or uh, a light kind of a thing that we don't really consider, but that we would hold you high, that we would exalt you and see you for who you are. And that as we see you, that you would change us, that you'd make us more like you, that you would help us to abandon our way in pursuit of yours by your grace and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today, as we look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, and this third commandment, what we're going to be doing is breaking it down into three parts. Part one, God's name. Part two, God's honor. And then part three, God's warning. Now, just to kind of catch us up to speed with where we're at, the Ten Commandments are divided into two major sections. If you're to just take the Ten Commandments and, and divide them up, there's two major sections of them. The first four commandments are dealing directly with your relationship with God, and then the next six commandments are dealing directly with your relationship with people. And when we get to number five, I'll, I'll tell you why, but I think that one's sort of a bridge. I think it sort of doubles as one that represents both, and, and we'll target that one here in a couple of weeks. But as we look at this, what we see is that before God tells us what to do, he tells us who he is, right? Do you remember that from our first study in, in the Ten Commandments? That, that before he gets into the end of the commandments, he tells us who he is. He reminds us of who he is. And in fact, these first four commandments that we're going through are a, uh, a reiteration or a buttressing or a holding up and fortifying the character and nature of God. 
And that translates not just into these first four, but into the, the next six as well, because all of this really is revelation of God. It's not speculation about God. It's vital for us to grasp that God is the one speaking. He's revealing himself. He's saying, this is what matters. This is who I am. This is what I care about. And this is part of my very nature. It's vital for us to grasp that. You see, when we understand it from that perspective, then we can understand that God is speaking and when he's saying what he's saying, he's revealing to us what his family is all about. You see, obedience to these 10 commandments doesn't purchase God's affection. It's not a way for us to get into God's good graces. It's not to say, well, I kept all the commandments, therefore I'm good to go. No, that's, that's not what the point of this is. It's a, it, it, what it does is when we submit ourselves in obedience to God's way, it positions us under his grace instead of under his discipline. It's like my relationship with my kids. They can't earn any more of my love. There's no possible way. And, and for those of you who are parents, you understand this idea. It's impossible for your kids to earn any more of your love. You already are crazy in love with them. It's, it's this weird thing. You go to the hospital, you know, as a guy, I, I have a, a belly. And then a few hours later, there's a baby. I'm like, whoa, where'd that come from? This is weird. And, uh, you know, and then there's this thing that happens within you that once you, well, I, I didn't have the belly. She had the belly, right? But uh, we got that. Like that's how anatomy works, right? All right. But I had my wife, there's a be- it's just a belly and it kicks my face sometimes when I'm, anyway. So then there's a baby. And there's this weird thing that happens as soon as I hold this little baby, right, that can't do anything for me, that um, is, is only going to keep me up uh, at weird hours of the night and is going to throw up on me and is going to eventually get older and demand phones from me and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I have this, this child and as soon as I hold this baby, there is something that takes place within me to where I have this overwhelming love. To where it's like I would walk through fire for you. There is is no way that I'm not going to give my life to care for and protect you. There's just something that happens within you. There's nothing that my kids can do to earn any more love. It's already full. There's no more that they can get out of me. That's because I'm their dad and they're my kid. But there's a lot that they can do within the realm of their obedience that will position them either under my grace, where I just want to dump french fries on them and take them to Disneyland, or I, they're positioned under my discipline, right? They can do, they can choose, and it's their obedience, and so too it is with us. That, that God's laying out these rules not to say, this is how you get in my family, it's to say, because you're in my family, this is how my family works, This is the way that it goes. So let's look at number one, God's name. Look back at verse seven. It says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God. So we're gonna look at this here, this idea of God's name. When he's talking about this commandment, the name of God is central to understanding what this commandment is all about. Now a name is far more than a series of sounds being strung together. You know, you just say something. Have you ever said or repeated a word over and over again to the point where it sort of loses purpose, it loses meaning? Uh, That's because it's just the sounds that that are being strung together. And the name is far more than that. When we think about names, they're actually associated with character. 
And, you know, you got your name because there were these people, your parents, who decided that they were going to give you a name. And in fact, when you name somebody, it's a sign of your authority in their life. It's a, it's a, it's a sign of your oversight in their life. I remember when we were naming our kids, uh, there were a few names that we really loved. Micah and I really loved and, and really valued and really appreciated. I had a whole list of boy names but didn't get to use any of them because every time it was a girl. Four times, you know. I love my girls. I wouldn't trade them at all. But uh, uh, I did pray for a boy, and the Lord ignored my prayer. So, um, if you need prayer, then maybe go to my wife. Um, but uh, we have these names, and, and and there were these names that we wanted to name our girls, and uh, we actually chose not to name them some of the names that we wanted that we really liked because we knew people with that name, and their character destroyed the name for us. You ever have that happen? You hear a name and all of a sudden there's this like rage that comes up within you. You're like, where did that come from? It's just a name. Like what is going on? Or, or this overwhelming sense of, I just love that person. That, that a name is associated with so much more than just a series of sounds. And in fact, the naming, like we said before, has to do with exercising leadership authority. And when it comes to God, we don't get to pick his name. We don't get to decide what his name is because we, we don't, I hope you get this idea, you're a person, you're a human, and God is not. He's bigger. He's over. I don't get to get over him. I don't get to have oversight over him. I don't have authority over God. And so I don't get to decide who God is. I don't get to decide what his name is. I don't get to decide what his character is. I don't get to decide what he's like. All I can do is have him reveal himself and I can choose whether or not I want to uh, participate in reality. That, that's all I get to do in this, in this exercise. He reveals himself, God does, in his name. And so what I want to do for uh, this first part here is I want to look at three ways through the scripture that God has chosen to reveal his name. The three ways God has chosen to reveal his name through the Bible. The first one is, as God has revealed his name to Moses. This is before, earlier in Exodus, uh, before the people of Israel were set free from Egyptian slavery, uh, that Moses was living in a, a distant land, uh, far removed from the people of Egypt, and he's a shepherd, and one day he's walking along on this mountain, and he sees a bush that's burning and not being burned up. And as he's like, wow, that's cool, he approaches, and God talks to him out of the bush, and as Moses approaches him, he gives, God gives him this command, this commissioning to say, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to, to lead my people out of this Egyptian slavery. And so Moses has a bunch of different uh, uh, reasons why he doesn't want to. I, I'm not cool. I don't, this is my, my paraphrase. I'm not, I can't talk very good or whatever. And uh, then he finally, his last one is, okay, so, you know, hypothetical, Lord, I go back and, and I tell the, the most uh, Im, uh, you know, powerful, influential man on the planet, Pharaoh, uh, that uh, a bush made of fire told me to come and tell him to let these people go. Like, who do I tell him your name is? Like, how does this, how does this work out? And God speaks from the bush. God speaks from the bush and he says, I am that I am. That's what the Lord says. Here, here's how it reads it in uh, Exodus 3, 13 through 14. It says this. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, 
I hope I can say this in, in a really reverential way. I hope you hear this the right way. But doesn't, when God says I am who I am, doesn't that sound like a nonsensical phrasing? Like what, what do you, what does that mean? I, I am who I am. Okay, it sounds more like Dr. Seuss than it sounds like anything else. And so you're, you're kind of like wrapping your mind around like what in the world is God talking about? And, and, and if, you, if you just stay right there on that surface level reading of it, then you don't really grasp what God is saying. But, but if you look a little bit below the surface, you start to th- really consider this. And, and what is God revealing when he says this? Well, as God is saying this, really what he's saying is I have no equal. I can't compare myself to anything like you understand. I am separate, I am distinct, I am unique, I am not like anything else that you know, that that I rely on nothing for life and existence. Uh, I am only rightly compared to myself. That's what God is saying. That that's the only way that you can understand the Lord. He exists in the eternal now. Not I was, but I am. And also, he's not held back by any of our human limitations. And so when God says this, when God reveals this, he's saying some things that are really deep and weighty about who he is. And we need to come in line with this reality. Not only does God reveal himself to Moses, but God also reveals himself in multiple ways, in multiple names throughout the Old Testament. Uh, There are uh, at least 16 names that God reveals himself. God gives himself these names throughout the Bible. We actually read one of them uh, last week in uh, the second commandment. If you're in your Bibles there, you can see that it says in uh, verse five, he says, you shall uh, not bow down to them nor serve them, Uh, Exodus 20, verse 5, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Excuse me, when it says, excuse me, that uh, I am a jealous God, this is not just just God saying uh, an action that he has. This is actually a a name for God. When you look into the Hebrew language, this is Elkanah is what it is, spelled with a Q. And what God is saying is that this is part of who I am, not something that I do. This is part of my character. This is part of my nature. This is me revealing one of my names. I'm jealous. I'm, I'm a jealous God. And we talked about that, how God's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you the way that I'm jealous for my wife and our relationship. Also, another name of God is Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. The Lord is peace. And there are many, many other different names that God reveals himself as. And these names, as God reveals himself this way, these are not actions that can be performed based upon how he's feeling that day. Maybe today God wakes up and he's had a bad day and he didn't really get some good sleep that night. And which, by the way, God doesn't sleep, right? And, um, and so, you know, he's just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. And so now I'm not, I'm not peace I am now vengeance, you know, or whatever. Like, there's, there's this, this sense in which it's not a, a, an action that God performs. It's not a feeling that he has, but in fact, it's his very nature. It's his essence. To, to oppose this, to think of this, you know, uh, as, as to say, this isn't who God is. When God says, this is who I am, uh, when we, to think that this isn't who he is, it's not, it's not like saying, you know, like for you and for me, that my, my character can change, you know, that maybe in this sense, I'm, I'm really kind, but then, in a, you know, catch me in the wrong day, and then I'm not feeling very well at all, and I'm mean. It's not the same way that, that uh, it's not like that for the Lord. It, to, to describe God that way, it would like, it'd be like trying to say, well, you know, it's like dry water. Like, there's, what does that mean? There is no such thing. 
Or, you know, maybe, you know, it's like trying to say that salt tastes sweet. How does that work? It's, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Or that maybe light appears as dark. Or that Micah is not going to go to Disneyland. Um, it's just things that are utter nonsense, right? They're just nonsensical terms that are an utter impossibility, of course. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try to work Disneyland into every, every message just so that you can understand that it's your idol. Anyway, um... <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Pray for me. Um, but there's this nonsensibility of it, right? That, that when God says, I'm your peace, when he says, I'm your rock, I'm your fortress, I'm your salvation, I'm your, that, that when God says this, it's not that he could or could not be, it's that he is. That, that's, it's, it's sure and, and established and secure and there's no possibility of it being any different, just like water can't be dry. Now, not only is it God revealed to Moses, revealed through the Old Testament, but also God has revealed himself and his name through Jesus. As we look into the New Testament, we see that Jesus specifically took on the name of God as I am. John 8, 58, it says this, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. And when he said that, when he took on that phrasing, I am, it was no doubt that what he was doing was assuming the exact same name that the bush at, uh, at the mountain gave to Moses. That this is the exact same thing. And, and we can tell because the very next verse, all the Pharisees started taking up stones because they were going to execute Jesus because he committed blasphemy, claiming deity. And they couldn't kill him because Jesus is God. And so when Jesus does this, he, he shows himself to be God. And throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus takes on this I am uh, name and he reveals it in seven different I am statements. It's the structure of the Gospel of John. It's around seven different I am statements. And we actually went through the Gospel of John as a church. And if you want to check that out, you can online. Uh, we have a, a, the whole series through the Gospel of John. I think that's when we started doing video. So I think we maybe around chapter 10 or something is when you can start watching the video. But you have to do the audio uh, before that. But in this, there are these seven I am statements. And, and essentially, when Jesus gives us these seven I am statements, it's kind of filling in the blank. Doesn't I am that I am sort of, it's like, okay, well, you are what? It's, it's like this hanging left open what? And so Jesus fills in the blanks for us. And he gives us these statements. He says, I'm the bread of life. That I'm the one who satisfies you. That, that I'm the one who gives you life. He says, I'm the light. That's what Jesus said. He said, I'm the door. And what he didn't mean is that he's wooden and he has a handle. Uh, what Jesus meant is he's, the, he's how you get into the things of, of the Lord. He's how you get into the family of God. He said, I'm the good shepherd. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine. That Jesus, in revealing all of these things, what he was doing was he was taking the I am and then he was giving us something to apply it to so that we knew what this means and how to apply it directly. You see, by these, Jesus declares that he's God and he, that he is literally the satisfying fulfillment of every single thing that you could ever need. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. And so when God says, I am that I am, and he reveals himself as, as, you know, Jehovah whatever throughout the scriptures, what he's saying is that everything you truly need, it's not found out there. It's not found in here. It's found in him. That's the only place that it's found. And so God's name 
is exalted through Scripture. Not only that, but God's honor. Notice there in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, he says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God, listen, in vain, in vain. Now, I don't know what goes through your mind when you hear the words in vain, but probably where, you're, where, where you immediately go to is a bad word, right? That's usually what you think. There's, like, there's a list of words, there's bad words, and there's good words, and God says bad words are bad, and so don't say the bad words, especially when it's associated to him. And it's, it is partially that, but it's far more than just not saying a bad word. What this is, this idea of in vain, it's an entire mindset that colors your entire world. It's like, you know, when you take that selfie and you want to post it on Instagram and you're just not sure because you're getting older and you're like, I'm kind of wrinkly, so maybe I should throw a filter on that thing. And then you're like, ah, oh, now I'm cute. You know, well, maybe that's just, maybe that's me. But, um, <laughs> Micah, wow, Micah's going to, never mind. Um, so you do that when you do the filter, right? When you put a filter on your pictures, it doesn't just, it doesn't just affect part of the picture. It affects the whole thing. And so when, you, when you're doing this, this idea of in vain, it's the filter through which you see everything. It's not just a bad word that you say. Uh, it, it does include any kind of misuse of God's name, like, you know, oh my God, to do that. That, that would be a, a misuse of God's name. Or, you know, the, the really bad one, the, I'm not going to say it, the GD. You know, you know, you know, if you don't know what that is, then praise the Lord. Um, or even, you know, like, you, you get injured, you get hurt, you, you do something wrong, you make a mistake, and then um, the, the words, oh, Buddha, come out. Oh, that doesn't happen to you? Oh, Muhammad, right? No, it's, it's Jesus Christ, isn't it? That's the, that's the name that, that comes out. It's to take his name, it's a misuse of God's name, but also it goes further into any misrepresentation of God's character, and this is where I think we need to really pay attention because there is a whole lot that this involves in our lives. And I think that we can very easily become uh, guilty of violating this third commandment in this sense. Maybe you're not you know, making a habit out of misusing God's name, but maybe a misrepresentation of God's character. Here's how Wayne Grudem says it in his Systematic Theology book on page 158. He says, The command, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, Exodus 27, is a command that we, should, that we not dishonor God's reputation, either by words that speak of him in a foolish or misleading way, or by actions that do not reflect his true character. That's the issue. This is what, when we talk about not taking God's name in vain, it's a lot more than saying, not saying some bad words. It's a lot more than that. In fact, the word vain, uh, the Hebrew word means empty, worthless, false, trivial, or light. That, that's what this idea of vain can, can be. It's speaking about God or representing God in an improper way, maybe in a derogatory way. You speak down about the things of God or about who he is, a disrespectful way to talk about God in a disrespectful way or even a dismissive way that he doesn't really matter. That, that just kind of whatever, you know, there's this, you know, fairy tale God thing out there. Uh, that's a dismissive way to speak of the things of God. Also, not only is it speaking about God like that, but also it could be attributing things to God that have nothing to do with him. 
I think this is where a lot of people end up in this type of a category, especially in quote-unquote Christian circles. Those who would sort of name the name of the Lord and then try to you know, participate in things that are outside of the, the things of God, trying to attribute things to him that have nothing to do with him. Sometimes people will say things like this, well, you know, pastor, I just don't really feel convicted about that. When you say that, When you say, I know the Bible says it's sin, and I do it, and I don't feel convicted, you're not in a good spot. In fact, I would say you are violating this third command. Because what you're saying is, my feelings supersede God's name, God's character, God's way, God's God's way of life, that, that my feelings are over it. And so because I don't feel bad about it, therefore it's, it's okay. Or maybe, you know, some people say, you know what, I, I really, I prayed about it and the Lord said that we can live together. But are you married? No, we're, we're not married, but the Lord said we can live together. You didn't hear from the Lord and you're taking his name in vain. You're using it, in a, you're misusing God's name. You're saying, I prayed and God spoke directly to me and somehow he gave me something that is outside of his word and now I can, I can live by that. No, no, you're living outside of the things of the Lord and taking his name in vain. Or maybe, you know, this was a, was a big one a while back and I fear it's gonna be a big one uh, coming up again. You know, I prayed about it and I think I can buy this house but I can't afford it. I'm just going to buy it anyway. And then when you lose the house and you bankrupt yourself, then you get mad at God and blame him. God, you told me I could do it. No, you, you weren't praying to the Lord. You were praying to yourself. And yourself told you, yeah, self, you can have whatever you want. And then you blame Jesus. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain and any kind of things like that. Or, you know, even uh, other ways that this can take place is having, uh, you know, people when they try to, uh, they, they say that God's moving among them and, and all it is is uncontrollable foolishness. People running around in circles, falling over like they're dead, pretending like gold's falling out of the sky, um, claiming things that are not from the Lord, barking, laughing uncontrollably, uh, pretending to heal people when you're not really healing anybody. Uh, It's absolute nonsense. It's a complete misuse of God's word. And it is a misrepresentation of who God is. It's taking God's name in vain. And another another third kind of final way that I'm, as I think through this, not only speaking about God or, uh, you know, misrepresenting him in 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 an improper way, uh, attributing things to God that have nothing to do with him, but also degrading the church. That when the church is degraded into something that it's not, I think we take the name of the Lord in vain. It's, it's when we, when we uh, you know, take the church and turn it into a game show where you could win a prize. Hey, show up and, you know, you could win a prize. Or we go even further to say, you know, let's, we're just going to have this entertaining concert and that's going to cause people to show up and then, you know, we'll trick them into Jesus. Or, you know, some kind of, we're going to have an inspirational talk. We're not going to, we're not going to, preach the gospel. We're not going to open God's word. We're not going to study through it. The, doing these things, it's not honoring the name of God. It's trying to trick people into Jesus with other means. And, and, and it's, it's a falsifying of God's name. That, that uh, I think Spurgeon said that if we try to use anything but the gospel to draw people to God, then we misrepresent him. I absolutely wholeheartedly agree. Just the gospel is enough to draw people to the Lord. Otherwise, what you draw people with, you've got to keep them with. 
And so once you start down that path, hey, we gotta give this thing away, we gotta do this next cool thing. Once you start down that path, there's always, you gotta outdo yourself over and over and over again. How are, why are people gonna show up, right? Like, uh, you gotta have this next cool thing that's gonna take place, you know? And so then you got Gravedigger driving down the middle of the, you know, the aisle to drop off the pastor before he says some stuff about how to be the best you. You know, it's like, this is nonsense. We're no longer doing church at that point. We're entertaining people. Uh, I, I believe it was, uh, I think it was maybe uh, C.S. Lewis or, or Tozer. They said that church isn't a place for entertaining goats. It's a place for feeding sheep. That's what we're here to do. The sheep of God. I have no interest in trying to entertain people who want nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, I have all the interest in the world of bringing people to the Lord and helping us to be healthy in the things of the Lord. All right, so not only taking God's name in vain, not only does it have to do with, you know, not saying certain things, but it has to do with the weighty glory of God. Either we're going to submit to that and exalt him, or we're going to rebel against him and try to trivialize the Lord. That's really what this comes down to, not taking God's name in vain. That, that it has to do with my submission or rebellion to that, that idea. You see, God, when we talk about exalting and glorifying the name of God, some people have a weird idea of this. They think that God's some sort of weird cosmic toddler who is demanding worship, you know? And if you don't, then he's gonna get mad and he's gonna send you to hell. Like that's, that's just, a, that's a view that a lot of people have about God. And it's just absolutely backwards from reality. It's not that God is demanding that we stroke his massive ego. The, the way that this works is that worship is rightly given when it's only given to Jesus. Worship that is rightly given is only given to Jesus. You see, we need to worship the Lord, but he does not need us to worship him. God does not need you to worship him. He's not, he's not lonely, wondering when, you're gonna, when are you gonna worship me and he's trying to get your attention and you know, he's trying to just, I'll give you nice things if you just give me some worship because I'm just, my worship tank is running low. So just love me. That is not the way that God works. He doesn't need your worship, but you absolutely need to worship him. That's what this has to do with because if you don't, if you don't worship him, you'll worship something and anything else is gonna lead you into foolishness and depravity, and it'll destroy the things that God is trying to build in your life. Taking God's name in vain is to declare with our words and actions that we believe the opposite of what the Bible says about God. I wanna read a couple of verses for you. Psalm 113, verse two says this, blessed be the name of the Lord, now and forever. This idea of blessing God's name, that we, we, we look at it as holy and exalted and not light and trivial, but weighty and glorious. When you take God's name in vain, you prove that you don't believe that. Proverbs uh, 18.10 says it like this, the name of the Lord is a strong fortress. The godly run into him and are safe. You see, if you don't think of the name of the Lord as high and exalted, why would you run into him? Why would you go toward him when you need safety and protection and salvation, you would think there's no use. Acts chapter four, verse 12 says it like this. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And this, of course, is the name of Jesus. That Jesus is the name by which you enter into salvation. How can we degrade or find that lowly or, or insignificant or inconsequential in any way? 
that the name of Jesus is exalted. It's high. It's glorious. That's why we spend so much time talking about Jesus here. That's why we spend so much time singing about Jesus here. That's why every single week we're going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. We're going to glory in his work and his love and his greatness because Jesus alone is the one who stepped into human history to take on your sinfulness, to bleed and die on your behalf and to raise from the dead three days later and it has nothing to do with him and what he needed. It has everything to do with you and what you needed. How can we not glorify that name? How can we not exalt that name? How can we not take that name and make it great among us? In Philippians 2.10, final verse I'll read for you in this piece here, that the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, even in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. You see, there's coming a day where every single knee will bow to Jesus. Every one. Whether or not they believe he's true and real, whether or not they believe he's God is, is irrelevant. Whether or not you think of God and, and you think of Jesus as God um, or you believe that it's just some sort of nice idea, every, you will bow before Jesus. Every single person to have ever lived will bow before Jesus one day. You have the choice though to bow your knee to him now and receive salvation and to have the hope of eternity in heaven with him, or to rebel against that and bow to him later and then be rejected from the kingdom of God, which the alternative is hell. Those, those are the real choices. And it has to do with, with our hearts and our, our rebellion or our submission to him. You see, when we take the name of the Lord in vain, it's disrespectful to him. It misrepresents him to the church and to the lost it violates our created purpose and it proves that we're not his. Uh, one, a, a theologian, an old dead guy said it like this. It's like <laughs> when you take God's name in vain, it's like sitting in your father's lap and slapping his face. That's what it's like. That's, that's pretty painful imagery, isn't it? All right, thirdly and finally, God's warning. Notice there in Exodus 20 verse seven, it says this, I will not hold him guiltless who takes his, uh, oh God, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now this is the second time this idea of in vain is brought up. And so this is really the, the thrust of what God is concerned with. Now, now in this, this idea of not holding him guiltless, like any good dad, this discipline, it's about our good, not his control. That's what the discipline is all about. That when it says, I won't hold you guiltless, there are consequences for choosing rebellion. That's just the way that it goes. That you can't have rebellion and not have consequences. There are consequences that, have, that come with rebellion. And being guiltless is the greatest human need. That's the biggest thing. So, so when you're thinking about your greatest need or the people around you, maybe the people that you go to work with or some of your family members and you're wondering, why are they so hard? Why are they so, why are they so uh, um, uh, just disconnected from the things of God or whatever? The, the reality is it has to do with guiltlessness. And the guilt and shame of sin weighs so heavily upon the human heart that it comes out in all of these terrible ways in our lives. The greatest human need is guiltlessness. 
More than your physiological needs, the air you breathe, the food you eat, the water you drink, the, your sleep, whatever, more than any of that stuff, more than your safety and provision kinds of needs, having a house, having a, a job, having income, uh, all that kind of stuff, more than your love and belonging needs that you need people in your life who you can share community and relationship with and you need to belong, more than that, more than even your esteem needs that the world preaches all the time. The thing that we need is just, we just need self-esteem. We just need to like ourselves more and then everything will work out. How's that going, right? The more we dive into that pit of nonsense, the worse things get. That's just not going to help anything. We don't, you don't, listen real quick. You don't need to esteem you. You need to esteem others. First, esteem the Lord and then esteem others. Forget about you. That'll just, if you do that, then you won't have to worry about this whole self-esteem thing. You won't have an issue with it at all. And then you know, achieving your potential. I just, I just want my life to have meaning. I want to, I want to have a legacy. I want to have, I want to be able to achieve my greatest potential or whatever. And what this is, those things that I just told you about, all of those needs, those are actually on Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's what the world preaches are your greatest needs. This is what you need. You need these things. And if you build up to this, then you can get to self-actualization and you can be awesome. And what the Bible says is, no, you don't, need it. you don't need any of that stuff the way that you need guiltlessness. You need justification. You need, you need to be able to stand before God with, without guilt. Now, just think about that for a moment. Just think about your own life. Think about maybe even just getting here this morning. Are you guiltless? And in, in letting that sit and feeling the weight of that, the truth is, I'm not guiltless. I'm not guiltless. So I've got a problem. I've got a major, major issue. And so as a workaround for their guilt, people imagine a false God who exists for their prosperity, who exists for their satisfaction, and who exists to satisfy their sinful desires. And when this false God fails or the one true and living God won't play the game and do their thing, they conclude that the Lord must be either incompetent or indifferent. That this is who God is. He's incompetent or he's indifferent. That God's just not, not, pay, not uh, uh, all powerful. That's the idea of incompetence. When people have an objection with God, this is usually what it comes down to. He's just, he, he cares, you know, but he's just not strong enough. That's why evil exists in the world. That's why bad guys do bad things because God could interrupt and he could stop the bullet from coming out of the gun. He could redirect the drunk driver into a, a tree instead of into that family in that vehicle. He could, you know, re, uh, he could intervene in all of these different atrocities throughout the world. And yet because he doesn't, He's just, he's just incompetent. He's just not powerful. He's like an absentee landlord who doesn't really care about his world and he's just kind of disconnected from the idea because he just can't do anything about it. Or he's not, he's not incompetent, he's just indifferent. Maybe he's all powerful. He could do anything he wants, but he's not all good. There's something wrong with God. Why? Why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you do it? Why didn't you take control? Why didn't you get me my thing? I mean, God, I went to church and I checked that off my list and you didn't give me the promotion at work. What's wrong with you? Get me my stuff, Jesus. And there's this wrestling over our, our lives in the things of the Lord. And, and when we conclude that God's either incompetent or indifferent, we're taking the name of the Lord in vain. David Guzik says it like this. Our conception of God 
must match with the God who's really there. We've got to be willing to submit what we think about God to the reality of who God actually is. You see, when Jesus put on flesh, when Jesus stepped into human history and went to the cross and died in your place and shed his blood and rose three days later to give you eternal life, he displayed the greatest competence. That wasn't defeat. Jesus wasn't defeated by the mean Romans and those, those Jewish guys who betrayed him. No, that was Jesus purposefully going to the cross. Jesus told Peter, nobody takes my life from me. I'm laying it down of my own free will. Even on the cross, Jesus could have come off the cross at any moment. Jesus could have, I mean, just think about it like this. Jesus controls reality, controls the atoms. If Jesus can, can cause the molecules of water to bind together to uphold his steps as he walks across the water, could he not, as the Roman soldier draws back with the whip to bring it across Jesus' back, couldn't he just disintegrate the whole thing, uh, you know, the, the whip in the guy's arm altogether and never take take a blow? Couldn't Jesus, if he was up on the cross and everyone's mocking him and saying, you're such a fool, Jesus, prove that your God come down off the cross. Couldn't he have just whoop, come right off the cross, healed himself completely and said, I'm God. Absolutely. There's no defeat in the cross. It's only victory because by going that way, going through that pain and difficulty and laying down his life that way, it's the purchase price of your soul. It's the purchase price of you to get into eternity with him. That's the great love of God. He's not incompetent. He's all-powerful. He, he's, not, he's not full of indifference. He cares so much that he's willing to do even that. And even that for those who would never love him, never return that love, never receive that salvation. Rebellion against exalting God is an attempt to dethrone him and exalt me. That's really what it comes down to. And here's the reality. The human soul can't bear that weight. You cannot bear the weight of being your own God. You'll, you'll crumble under that pressure. You, you're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You're not great enough. And when you try, that's where you get all sorts of, of crazy cracks in, your, in your, your facade that you try to project to everybody else. I've got this under control. I'm good. And it all comes crumbling down because you're not designed to bear the infinite weight of the glory of God. We've got to let him be that. You see, pursuit of this lie that I can do that puts my life out of order with reality. And it's impossible to violate reality without bearing the consequences of it. Think of it like this. If you were to, if you were to fall, to trip and fall, or to fall off of some height, you know, uh, maybe some of you work at, with ladders. I remember when I was <clears throat> uh, working as we were planting this church, working for uh, the cable company. And uh, one of the things that we would do is we would take these ladders and we would climb up on uh, telephone poles and mess with the cable up there. And one of the crazy things that they get you to do, I don't know if you've ever seen a guy do this, but the ladders have these hooks on them. And so you actually hook the ladder in the middle of a strand of wire. That's a precarious spot to be in. You know, you're, there's like nothing around you and there's just a wire up there, you know, 15 feet in the air. And you're gonna climb up there and just go do some stuff. It's really exciting. And so as you're up there, if I, if I don't, you know, use my lanyard and tie myself off and I take a bad step, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall because gravity's real, right? And if I violate the laws of gravity, I get the consequence of 
hitting the ground. That's just the way life works. I can't violate the reality of God's glory and his weightiness and his splendor and, and, and uh, the awesomeness of God and not bear the consequences of it. There are some pretty insane consequences for this in the book uh, throughout the scripture. I'll give you a couple of different examples as we close. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 14. Um, there's a, in this section, there's a young man who he uh, blasphemes the name of God. And God uh, says here, it says, take the blasphemer outside the camp and tell all those who heard the curse to lay their hands on his head and let the entire community stone him to death. Yikes. Like that's, that's a pretty, pretty severe kind of thing. I mean, just imagine if right now on Facebook, all the people blaspheming God's name, if he's like, all right, you're all dead. Boom, like thin the herd pretty quick, wouldn't it? Reduce the population uh, very, very quickly if that was to take place. That it's, it's all this young man blasphemes God's name and is executed for it. It's not about saying bad words. It's because he had a bad heart toward God and it cost him his life. What a crazy thing. In Acts chapter five, you can look this up for yourself if you'd like to. Acts chapter five, verses one through 10, there's this, uh, there's this story, this uh, you know, narrative of this, this, this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And what they do is they see that there's other people giving large sums of money to the church. And they say, hey, here's what we're gonna do. We're going to sell a piece of land and then we're going to give half of it to the church and keep the other half for ourselves. But we're gonna tell everybody that we, not half, a portion. In my head, it's half. We're going to give some to the church. We're going to keep some for ourselves. And then we're going to tell, tell them that we gave it all. And, uh, and so it's going to be awesome. Everyone's going to think we're great. And then, uh, you know, Peter says, hey, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And Ananias dies, drops dead. And then his wife comes in a little bit later. And uh, he says, hey, did you guys sell the land for this much? And she's like, yep. And then she dies uh, right there, just str- str- stricken dead because they they, this had nothing to do with real estate, right? This isn't like, hey, if you sell real estate, you got to give all of it to the church. Um, I mean, I guess you could try to develop that terrible theology on that, you know, or whatever, but that's not, it has nothing to do with that. They could have kept as much as they wanted. They could have given none of it. It belonged to them. The, the reality is they were blaspheming, blaspheming the name of God. They were misrepresenting God's name. They were saying, we're giving in the name of the Lord, when in fact, they were doing something completely different and it cost them their lives. First Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 through 30 says this, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is in reference to eating and drinking communion. And here, right there in 1 Corinthians 11, it says that some people are weak and ill and dead because they ate and drank communion in an improper way. They didn't, they didn't hallow God's name. They didn't exalt and glorify the body of Jesus given on their behalf. They just did it in a flippant uh, way of taking the most weighty thing, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for you and making it a trivial thing. You see, God's name is much, is much more than a series of sounds. It reveals his character to us. And he is literally everything that we could ever hope for or need. And the only right thing for us to do is to glorify his name. That's the only right thing for us to do. And so I wanna encourage you. Are you glorifying God's name? Not just with your words, but with your life. 
Is your hope firmly placed in him? And if you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you're not a Christian, then I want to encourage you, receive the gift of salvation that Jesus purchased for you because that's the first step. That's the number one thing to begin glorifying and honoring the name of God because of how much he's loved you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for the chance to study it and to give our time and attention to knowing you better. And we pray that the weight of your glory would rest down upon our souls and that you would cause us to be more like you. So we submit our hearts and minds to you. We thank you for your great love for us. And we pray that you would uh, find a, a place of glory among us. In Jesus' name, amen.